baseball fans. It's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. The Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello again and welcome to another episode of From the Diamond. I'm Grant McCauley and once again it's time for our weekly chat about the Atlanta Braves and of course what else is happening across the world of Major League Baseball. Kind of a fun eventful week, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of big baseball stories and of course we are marking the days off of our list as our countdown to spring training continues. Under two weeks to go before Braves pitchers and catchers will converge on Northport, Florida and their brand new spring training facility. And then about 10 days after that, we'll have ourselves exhibition baseball. So it is all coming together here in the year 2020. We'll jump into our Braves talk in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to let you know that you can subscribe to From the Diamond on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Ratings and reviews always appreciated. Keep those coming. And make sure you're connected on social media. On Twitter, at From the Diamond underscore is where you can find the show. I am at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. Bill Rowland will join me in just a couple of minutes, and you can follow him on Twitter at Bill Rowland, B-I-L-L-R-O-H-L-A-N-D. On Instagram, at From the Diamond, where you can find the show, no underscore on that one, and at Grant McCauley is where you can find me on Instagram. And, of course, every episode of the show and so much more is available at FromTheDiamond.com. That includes my Braves positional preview series. The catchers are going up this weekend. The bullpen and the starting rotation already done, so that will be three parts of the five-part series as the catchers will be posted this weekend, so look out for that on FromTheDiamond.com. Before we get into our starting nine and check out the news across Major League Baseball, I want to talk about the week that was for the Atlanta Braves. Not a whole lot of news. Of course, Marcelo Zuna's signing was the big story of 2020 thus far for the Braves, but out at Truist Park this past weekend was the annual Chop Fest. That was a whole lot of fun. A lot of fans showed up. The rain held off. It was a little bit of a cold day, but I think it was a good day overall for everybody that got to make it out to Chop Fest. Hope you got a chance to hear some of the great Q&As with Braves players and coaches if you weren't able to make it down to Truist Park. A lot of really interesting conversations that went on. If you have not, I encourage you to go check those out. You can find them on Atlanta Braves social media, including Facebook, where they posted those great Q&As from ChopFest last week. A few things that stuck out to me from the media availability. Freddie Freeman, that elbow is good to go. He said that when doctors opened up the elbow, they found not one but two bone spurs three bone fragments, and zero room in the joint of his right elbow. And that second bone spur, which wasn't immediately visible in the imaging that had been done on Freeman's elbow leading up to the surgery, was about to break off. So even if he made it through the division series and the Braves had advanced, Freddie Freeman's season likely would have been over at that point because of the pain in his elbow and the very real possibility that one of those bone spurs was going to break off. And at that point, it would require immediate surgery to correct that issue. So... Freddie Freeman got the elbow surgery. He's feeling very good about his health and, of course, feeling good about what the Braves have done over the course of the winter, bringing in Marcelo Zuna, Cole Hamels, Travis Darnot, Will Smith, a revamping of the bullpen that already got a makeover at the trade deadline last year. A lot to feel good about if you're the Atlanta Braves in terms of building off of your success from the past couple of years and hopefully taking that next step 
when it comes to the 2020 season. And Freddie will be good to go in spring training. No physical limitations right now and pain-free in that right elbow for the first time, he said, in nine years. So no small thing for Freddie Freeman to get that elbow cleaned up and to be healthy and ready to roll come opening day. I think one of the most interesting things we'll see in Braves spring training is that third base competition between Johan Camargo and Austin Riley. It may be the storyline to follow in Braves camp this spring. Both those men had to go through some struggles and some injury frustrations in 2019, but both of them are focused on winning this job, but also maintaining the bond that they've formed as teammates over the last year as well. So both Austin Riley and Johan Camargo feeling good, feeling healthy, and I'm looking forward to seeing what both of them can do come spring training. But it's important to remember, Grapefruit League stats are not going to be the only determining factor here, but if both men are healthy, they'll have a chance to contribute, I believe, in some way at some point in the 2020 season. Speaking of health, Ender Inciarte was at ChopFest as well and talked about the last couple of years for him, but especially 2019 from the injury standpoint of both the back problems and then the hamstring issue that ultimately ended his season. And feeling like you learn a lot through the adversity that comes at you, and he dealt with a lot of it in 2019, was not able to be out on the field when he was, was dealing with a lot of pain and just simply wasn't able to be the player that he believes he can be. But I liked what I heard from Ender when it came to his mindset about this crowded Braves outfield. When you bring in Marcelo Zuna and you've already got Ronald Acuna Jr., two of your three everyday spots are now taken. Ender's a natural center fielder, and if he's hitting, plus the defense, that's a pretty good outfield right there with Acuna in right, Enciarte in center, and Ozuna in left field. But the Braves also have Adam Duvall and Nick Marcakis, and they've got two outfield prospects that at some point this year could find their way from Gwinnett to Atlanta. And that, of course, is Christian Pache and Drew Waters. So it's a crowded outfield, but Enciarte feels like those are the things he can't worry about, but having a great spring training, being healthy, and working on getting his swing back to where it was, and that month or so right before the hamstring injury that he felt like might have been the best he's ever been offensively in his career, that's the level he's going to be striving for in spring training, and that's the level of play that he's going to need to edge out some of the other competition and to get some regular at-bats. Now, speaking of Acuna, he has spent most of his time in Venezuela over the winter, but working very hard. If you followed him on social media, his Instagram story has been full of the kind of workouts he's been into. And, of course, we saw a little bit of the basketball skills of Ronald Acuna Jr. over the winter as well. But he is ready to have a big year. And one of the questions that was asked of him was, you didn't get to 40-40 last year. Is that your goal coming into 2020? And Acuna said, look, it's a good goal but the number one thing he wants to do is win. So secondary to that will be all of the personal goals. And he said, there's time for 40-40, but I like the focus being on what the outcome's going to be on a daily basis for the team. And ultimately, over the course of 162, having an opportunity due to his immense talent of reaching a statistical milestone like joining the 40-40 club. That said, I think we'd all love to see him get there. And 2020 would be as good a year as any to go 40-40. So that's what's going on with the Atlanta Braves. But now, as always, time to turn our focus to what else has been happening across the world of Major League Baseball over the last seven days. And to help me do that, I want to welcome Bill Rowland into the show. We do this every week. This is our starting nine. And, Bill, I'm excited to get back into this with you and chop some of these things up because it has been a nice, eventful week to close out the month of January. Yes, and as we are taping this, Grant, we can say I believe we are less than 48 hours from being in at least the month that spring training will start. We're not 48 hours from spring training, 
But February is this weekend, and that means spring training is coming very, very soon. Yes, I am thrilled about that. Under two weeks until pitchers and catchers report. We can officially say that no matter when you're listening to this. And if you listen to it in a couple of weeks, then hopefully you've already been excited about the fact that baseball is, in fact, back or at least one big step closer towards getting back. But like I said, we've got a lot of stuff going on this week, so let's jump right in. And leading things off for us this week is uh, the Houston Astros, who are taking the first steps to rebuild in a way from their sign-stealing scandal and what it cost them from a front office perspective and also from an on-field perspective because they have hired a brand-new manager, and that is Dusty Baker. Baker, 70 years old, has steered multiple clubs to the postseason, though a World Series has eluded him over the course of his managerial career. This, I think, Bill, is a fit that was more about finding the perfect personality as much as anything to help pilot them through what is obviously a turbulent time in Houston How do you feel about Dusty Baker taking the reins for the Astros? Well, I think it gives him credibility right off the top because he is a well-respected manager throughout Major League Baseball. And you can have the arguments of whether or not he is a good postseason manager. Of course, only winning the one pennant back in uh, 2002 with the Giants. Had the Nationals uh, back-to-back years, 16-17, and they lost in Game 5 in both years. And being from here and, and watching him manage in those series, there were some questions about whether or not Dusty may have been the reason, you know, pitching changes or pinch hitting spots or whatever it was. But he is a guy that over, what, 22 years in the major leagues, he's usually got his team first or second every once in a while to go south on him. But with that talent that they have there in Houston, I'm not going to say he could really be on autopilot, but there's going to be some time that they're going to be on autopilot because they're just that good. To me, it's going to be, can he get them now with all the pressure that will come in October because I think they'll be there. Can he manage that pressure for them? Can he get them through what is going to be question after question after question, especially if what if they win the division and the first playoff series they're in, they get down 0-2 and everybody's saying, well, this is here we go. This is what's going on with the Astros. That's where I think he's going to have his toughest time. or I'm not going to say toughest, most challenging time. Hopefully he's up for it because I think they could have taken anybody and Houston was still going to be the favorite in that division. But at least Dusty Baker gives them an air of credibility and a guy who is well-liked around Major League Baseball. Yeah, there's no question about the talent that the Houston Astros have. And I think that more than anything, they needed to find someone who was a uniter. And if you listen to people across baseball, both the folks that are in a clubhouse or have run a team or have worked in baseball their whole life, or even folks that are just reporting and talking about baseball on a regular basis, Dusty Baker universally gets high marks in that regard. He can bring a room together and manage 25 or now 26 different personalities on a regular basis. And I think that was a huge step for the Astros because they could not allow this thing to devolve inside of the clubhouse because I think that, again, and I've said this before as we've talked about this over the last month, this is going to get worse before it gets better for the Houston Astros. And I don't think there's any way around that. And we're starting to see little pockets of the fallout around Major League Baseball in terms of the perception of what exactly the Astros have done, this thing that they perpetrated, and how it affected so many people, not just on their side or the team on the other side, playing them on a particular night, but the careers, the financial aspect, all kinds of different things that have come up that's going to breed a lot of acrimony. And that club is going to have to have someone right out in front of that who knows how to steer through, I think, just about anything baseball can throw at you on a day-to-day level just to keep that club in a position to be able to weather some of the other storms that's going to come that way. 
So I think that Dusty Baker is a great hire in that regard. I think that they could have gone with somebody else, a baseball lifer like a Buck Showalter if they wanted to, but I think Dusty Baker is a little bit softer in the right places, if that makes sense, to kind of give them a guy that just has a, a way of leading this team the way that I think it's going to need to be led over the next, what, six months, maybe two years. That's how long Dusty Baker's contract could be. So I think they got the right guy. Yeah, no question. And you you go back to how he's handled controversy in the past, and it's been uh, done pretty well. I mean, he had Barry Bonds out in San Francisco right. when Bonds was being accused of all that stuff and, and was able to navigate them the last three years he was there. Uh, they won 90-plus games. Um, then went to Chicago, and they had that awful meltdown. Uh, you know, think about in the playoffs – in uh, in 03 when they were what an out or two away from finally getting to the world series and he was able to navigate them the next year now they won the same amount of games didn't get to the playoffs but at least they didn't completely fall off the cliff after what had happened to them in 03 so i think he's been able to kind of navigate those waters and a couple other difficult spots um again in washington 95 97 wins it's still going to come down to October and what he can do then because he's really only had that one good year in, in 02 with San Francisco. Otherwise, it's kind of been win a series and then bow out or not even get through the first round. Yeah, I think you could argue that that 02 Giants team, in addition to that 03 Cubs team, both were, were clubs that could have gone to the World Series and or won the World Series. Of course, the Giants got there. They just couldn't finish off the Angels. The Cubs, meanwhile, they rolled right through Atlanta and got right into the National League Championship Series. Then, of course, we know what happened against the Marlins that year. So I can't lay all of that at the feet of Dusty Baker because the team has to go out there and, you know, win or lose a game on its own merits, you know, because of the nine guys that are out there at, at a given time. However, when you are the guy that leads the club, you get the one loss record and fairly or unfairly, a lot of that's going to be laid at the manager's feet. And that's something that Dusty Baker knows well, has accepted and has uh, worn in whatever manner he needs to, in order to get his clubs uh, where they need to get. But Getting over that hump, winning a World Series, I think would certainly be great for Dusty Baker. I don't know about you, though. I have a hard time sitting here thinking, wouldn't it be great if the Astros won the World Series? I don't think there's going to be too many people across baseball, despite the likability factor of Dusty Baker, that are cheering for the Houston Astros to win the World Series. And I've said before, the Houston Astros of 2020 are not an underdog story. No, no, they are not. And I can't imagine uh, other than people uh, in Houston uh, rooting for the Astros when it comes to uh, October baseball this year. All right, let's talk about one of Dusty's former clubs in the Chicago Cubs. It only took five years. They got this thing done so fast, Grant. (laughs) But an arbitrator has finally ruled that the Cubs third baseman, Chris Bryant, has lost his playing time grievance against the club. Bryant was sent down to the minor leagues despite a a fantastic spring training in 2015. The Cubs did that so they could get an extra year of team control. He's not the first guy. He's not going to be the last guy to get stuck with this. But with the collective bargaining agreement coming up, do you think the players are going to hold the owners to the fire on this and get this changed in the next agreement? I absolutely do. And I think that Chris Bryant is going to be the poster child of the service time manipulation thing that has become more and more over the past few years. And really, I think the tipping point might have been Chris Bryant with clubs just utilizing a system that for some reason was set up to have a couple of weeks, three weeks in April that would become a cutoff deadline that would be the difference in whether or not you were credited with that full year of control or that full year of service time, I should say, 
in order to get to free agency faster. So instead of getting there in six years, the Cubs are basically getting him there in seven years because of the fact he was left in the minors. And again, not the only club that's done this. Lots of teams, lots of players have done it. The Braves did it with Ronald Acuna Jr. a few years ago, a couple years ago. And that was something that the argument came up at that time. Look, what is this going to do? Is he going to be interested in re-signing? Acuna ended up signing a very long extension. Meanwhile, Chris Bryant, who, no coincidence, his agent is Scott Boris, he was not interested in signing a big, long, team-friendly extension. So he's going to try to test free agency and does so as a former Rookie of the Year, a former MVP, a World Series champion. That's a pretty good list when you've played for the Chicago Cubs, especially that world champion thing. That did not happen for 108 years. So long story short, if there was a player that could be the face of this, trying to get this thing changed and trying to maybe reevaluate and renegotiate very literally what it is that clubs have as far as control, free agency, perhaps arbitration is going to be on the table to be talked about as well. There's a revamping, I think, that needs to happen here, Bill. And I do think that this is a very uh, visible example of exactly what baseball is going to have to deal with as they move forward because times have changed. And I think that the Players Association cannot afford to botch or bungle the most important aspects of this particular CBA as I think that they did the last one by really not focusing on the right things. This has got to be a central debate for them and one that they need to win. And it's going to be interesting, too, with that of, look, if the owners are going to give in on this, then the players are going to have to give back something What is it from the player's side that the owners are going to want? To me, that's the most fascinating thing because we don't really hear much about what the owner's demands are going to be because it's usually the players that are coming to the table and saying this needs to change, that needs to change. This will be, I think, a number one and the player's side of things on what they're trying to get done, what they're trying to get changed. But you're going to have to have some give and take. So I'm not sure what it's going to be from the owner's side but there's going to be something that the owners may spring on them and say, fine, you want to get that? We'll figure out what the new system is. We'll just start counting days when they you know, start accruing them, and it'll be a, a certain number of days in the, in the major leagues. But we need this from you, and I'm not sure what that's going to be. Yeah, I don't know what the trade chips are going to be to make a very, very baseball kind of pun, but there is going to have to be a give and take here. And I think that the players, and particularly Tony Clark, A lot of his legacy as a leader for this union is going to be tied into getting this particular CBA right because he has drawn a lot of criticism for a number of different things. And I know talking to some people around baseball during the last CBA, and I heard this from a couple of different places, was the players really kind of concentrated on creature comforts and stuff that didn't necessarily affect the bottom line enough to swing the balance of a number of different aspects or topics that really needed to be a little bit more in check from the player side. So obviously the CBA is not going to be negotiated overnight for the people that are listening to this podcast. If it is, you're welcome. But uh, this is going to be something that definitely Chris Bryant's name is going to come up a time or three before that's all said and done. And they have to come to the table and get something done because baseball can ill afford the bad PR that would come with a work stoppage, whether that's a strike or a lockout. Let me throw kind of a two B at you here. Because with this ruling now, it has opened up the Chris Bryant kind of trade rumors. Yes. And Colorado seems to be on the fringe talking to them about a straight-up third baseman for third baseman trade. Just real quick, do you make that trade? If you're Colorado or if you're Chicago, do you make that trade? 
I mean, if you're Chicago, it might make a ton of sense because you may not be feeling very confident about re-signing Chris Bryant or extending Chris Bryant before he becomes a free agent. And then again, if you're Colorado, I don't know what their end game is. And we're going to talk about them a little bit more later, but I just don't know what that does for either club other than if Chicago felt that they would be getting somebody who might stick around longer. I think that Arenado's opt-out is the wild card in any trade scenario, including this one. If it's two years for both, either one, I don't know that I could really say that the Cubs would be better off trading Chris Bryant. Yeah, to me, I'm of the opinion, look, if it's going to be two years for both of them, Chris Bryant now hates the Cubs. We already know about Arenado not being happy with Colorado. Maybe they both go, you know what? They both went out of town. You take ours, we'll take yours. Maybe so. Good luck. Yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, that's the way I I, I think I'm I think this thing plays out. So it very well could be. And I know I love a good storyline and I, I love a good change of scenery swap, especially if we're talking about big names and we don't see them too often. Usually it's because somebody's coming off a bad year and maybe playing in a different market will kind of kickstart their career and you find two of those guys and swap them. Maybe this bad contract swap or something like that. But this would be very different and very intriguing if that was in fact to come to pass. Meanwhile, not many big free agents are left out on the market after Nick Castellano signed a four-year deal with the Cincinnati Reds this week. It's worth $64 million, the same as new teammate Mike Moustakis inked a little bit earlier in the winter. It does include some deferrals and opt-outs and whatnot. But bottom line, Castellanos is the latest in a string of additions this winter for Cincinnati. And I think it might just make them the team to beat in the NL Central. What do you think? Yeah, they're there. I mean, we, we've talked about it. it. seems like every week we're saying, look, it would not surprise me if this team makes a run. And we're usually talking about a team in Cincinnati. It's another solid right-handed bat for them. Uh, again, to go with Moustakas, who signed earlier, so their lineup now gets a little bit deeper. We talk about that all the time, especially with National League teams, yeah. where if you can get down to five, six, and seven, all being quality hitters, the pressure that that puts on a starting pitcher when you don't have the DH, this to me lengthens out their lineup a little bit more. Look, you can have your argument about whether he's a good defensive player or not. I think they can get away with him uh, in there in left field. I think Cincinnati, again, 90 wins should be what they're looking at in the NL Central. And if Chicago is taking a step back, uh, if Milwaukee and St. Louis take a step back, not going to worry about Pittsburgh, and we'll talk about them in a little bit. But I think Cincinnati could be one of those teams that even if they don't win the division, they're going to be there fighting with the teams like the Braves and the Nationals and the Diamondbacks and other teams who may not win the division, but they're going to be in that wild card race and they may steal the NL Central before it's over and done. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be easy for them. I think the Cubs are certainly going to be competitive. We'll see what they do with Chris Bryant. If he's still in a Cubs uniform come opening day, Will he be in one come the trade deadline? That's a question that kind of goes back to what we were talking about. But in addition, the Milwaukee Brewers, I think, will be primed to be very competitive. The St. Louis Cardinals, of course, will be right there. So we could have a very fascinating four-team race in the NL Central, and I'm all for that kind of thing. Yeah, anytime you can get good pennant races, it doesn't matter if your team, you know, I know a lot of our listeners are, are Braves fans. It doesn't matter if the Braves are involved in it or not. It's just fun to watch day in and day out the changes in the positions and you're watching this team's got three games here and they're only two back and there's 10 to play. That's what makes baseball fun. The idea that it just gets as a blowout and, and somebody's up by 15 games, you know, in the middle of September, that's no fun. Not for, the, not for those of us that like a good pennant race. No, I will take the good pennant race. I'll take it in every division, and I'll take a very exciting October that has a little bit of everything, and sometimes new teams, new blood, that parity that can come with that. 
And for a club that's worked as hard as Cincinnati to get itself back to October, I like seeing these new teams emerge and we get new storylines, we get new matchups, and it gets a lot more exciting than sitting there saying, oh, well, I wonder if anybody will beat the Dodgers this year. No, well, okay, let's just turn the page. Exactly. All right, let's talk now AL Central. And another team that's done a lot of moves in this offseason, trying to get themselves better. Not sure that they're contenders quite yet, but they're working towards it. White Sox starter Dallas Keuchel spoke to the media at the team's Fan Fest, and he offered an apology for the Astros' sign-stealing scheme. I guess he kind of did anyway. You'll have to judge this for yourself. We've got some audio, and Grant, I want you to tell me if you think Keuchel's words do any kind of justice to what was going on. I think apologies should be in order for, if not everybody on the team. And and when the stuff was going on, it was never intended to be what it's made to be right now. And I think, I think um, when stuff comes out about things that happen during the course of a big league ball season, it's always blown up to the point of, oh my gosh, this is this has never happened before. I mean, I'm not going to go into specific detail, but during the course of the playoffs in '17. Everybody was using multiple signs. I mean, for factual purposes, when there's nobody on on base, when in the history of Major League Baseball has there been multiple signs? So you can go back and watch film of every team in the playoffs. There was probably six out of eight teams using multiple signs. So it's just what the state of baseball was at that point in time. Was it against the rules? Yes, it was. And, you know, I personally am sorry for, for what's come about the whole situation, but it is what it is, and we got to move past that. So I never thought anything would have come like it did, and, and I myself am sorry, but uh, it's just it's, we got to move on. That audio is courtesy of ESPN, and, Bill, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, there's a lot to unpack with what Dallas Keuchel said, but on yep. one hand, he said a whole lot of nothing. And I know that the Astros pitchers are not the guys that are really facing the heat for all of this, but in a lot of ways, I just felt like it missed the mark for me, because when I listen to Dallas Keuchel explaining it and the fact that, yes, clubs are using multiple signs, so maybe it was harder to decode, maybe some of the fact of the matter that comes with it is why do clubs feel like they have to use multiple signs with nobody on base? It's because right. technology might be affecting the game in some way, shape, or form, and if you have a team or teams, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt for maybe not being the only club doing this at the same time. I don't know. That's just pure speculation, but Let's just say everybody was trying to get that technological advantage. That doesn't make it any more right. And the fact that the Astros put together what seems to be a very elaborate sign-stealing scheme, I can't sit here and tell you with a straight face that that apology does much for me. I like Dallas Keuchel a lot. I think he is a, a guy who's pretty accountable. And from the experience I had, having a chance to chat with him some and watch him with the Braves last year, I think he's a good guy. But I don't necessarily think that him wading into this and framing it the way that he did really did him any favors. And I certainly don't think it offered a satisfactory explanation for why the Astros were doing what they did to the extent that they did it. And the fact that, hey, we didn't expect anything to come of it, that's just paper thin to me. I just didn't really feel like it did much. How did you take what Dallas Keuchel offered there? Yeah, and to me, when he says, oh, well, you know, look at six of eight teams were using multiple signs with nobody on base, it says, well, that's because they knew somebody was cheating. Seems like you know, like, like Like he said, when in the history of baseball have people done that? So he's, he's almost, to me, was almost excusing it like, well, they knew it was going on, so yeah. they took care of it. They used multiple signs. What's the big deal? Now, 
he is correct in saying, look, you know, things that go on during a major league baseball season. We rehashed this. We talked about it. It's been going on since baseball was invented of people trying to steal signs. It doesn't make it any better and it doesn't excuse them for what they did. I'm always suspect when somebody goes, if anybody out there is offended, I apologize because it doesn't sound like you think you offended anybody. No, it's a catch all. Yeah, exactly. It's just to, to put it out there and then you can say, well, I apologized. Well, you kind of did. You just basically said, hey, if you were offended, that's on you. I'm not offended. The other guys aren't offended. But if you're offended, okay, I'm sorry for what I did. You're going to get a lot of this, I think, Probably. when spring training rolls around. It's just going to be guy after guy after guy. What we were talking last week, Alex Bregman, right, mm-hmm. um, that had the the non-apology apology. I think all of the Astros, for the most part, are going to kind of have this type of attitude towards it because, quite frankly, I think without coming out and saying it, I think a lot of these guys in Houston – aren't apologetic for what happened. They're just apologetic for getting caught. Absolutely. It's almost like when you're a kid and you're not really sorry about what you did, but you are sorry you got caught. And maybe over time you start to understand a little bit more of, well, what do you actually have to be sorry for and what constitutes a real apology? But we're not talking about a bunch of kids here that got caught doing something that they weren't supposed to do. These were guys that came up with a concentrated, concerted effort to subvert the competition that was happening on the field. And I don't know if you saw this or not, but there was an Astros fan that went through hours and hours and hours. I think it was something like 50-some-odd games of Houston Astros footage from 2017. He parsed through all that and created charts based on the trash can banging that he heard. And I retweeted this, so if you haven't gotten a chance to check this out and you're listening to this right now, or or Bill, if you haven't caught up with this either, it definitely has gotten some traction and gotten a lot of attention over the last 24 hours. And this is why I feel like, again, we've only seen that just the tip of the iceberg with all of this, though it feels like a lot, I really feel like, and I've said this before on this episode, and I'll say it again, things are going to get worse for them before it gets better, if for nothing else than a public relations standpoint, but from a team integrity standpoint, it's going to be really hard to convince anyone that you're on the high road and when you're wearing a Houston Astros jersey for a while, and it's because of the things that people decided to do to gain an advantage. And that, to me, is the bottom line for it. I don't need former Astros pitchers or current Astros pitchers to apologize for what their hitters did, but there is an accountability for every man that put on that uniform that was aware of that, including A.J. Hinch and anyone else in the Astros' front office that was aware of this. They signed off on it by being silent and doing nothing. And that, I think, is getting lost in the shuffle of all the things that they really need to be aware of. And Houston, to your point, there is a shocking level, a lack of self-awareness by some of these players. That's a great way to put it, the lack of self-awareness of what they were doing and how, as you mentioned before, how it impacted guys. And and we don't know, down the road, there may have been pitchers that lost out on contracts, no doubt. You know, whether it's a year or money or whatever, because they didn't pitch well against top competition. And if you don't think that's one of the things that ball clubs will use in free agency, well, let's say, well, yeah, you were great against these guys. The White Sox weren't very good and the Royals. But look, you got hammered every time you went up against these good teams like Houston. You better believe teams are doing that. And, and if you're a pitcher, you now can say, 
well, wait a minute. They knew what was coming. Anybody's going to get lit up if they know whether it's fastball or off-speed coming. So they have certainly muddied the waters for a lot of different things uh, going forward here in MLB. And they have no one to blame but themselves. For the time being, though, I'm going to put away my soapbox and let's jump back into the rumor mill, which was working overtime this week, as once again, it's been reported multiple places. The Red Sox seem likely to trade superstar Mookie Betts. He's under team control for just one season before he hits free agency and very likely to become baseball's next $300 million man, if not maybe $400 million. We'll see. But he is one of the true stars of the game. The Dodgers are believed to be the front runners. They make the most sense for a variety of reasons. And after a very quiet offseason, this seems like just the kind of move that could make L.A. into a World Series lock if you really start looking at it. Yeah, and, and as we've talked about with the with the Red Sox, they're looking not only to move bets, but they are asking teams to take Price as well, David Price, because of his big contract. Now, they'll end up having to pay some of that, I would imagine, but it helps them get under the luxury tax threshold, which is one of the things that they're trying to do uh, for 2020. So then they can go back out and start signing free agents again with the ridiculous dollars that they'll spend. But it's interesting in doing the research on this before we came uh, to, to tape the podcast, I'm looking back and, you know, typing in, you know, bets to Dodgers and looking at all the things. There were rumors of this last year beforehand of yeah. bets to the Dodgers. So this has been on the, on the back, uh, back boiler, if you will, for the Dodgers for a while now. And it started creeping up uh, more earnestly at the end of the world series in November. And it's just kept coming and kept coming and, Look, I was one of the ones that was dismissive of it. I didn't think the Dodgers would come off uh, some of their prospects that that would make sense for the Red Sox. And especially if they're taking David Price, they're not going to be able to ask for big-time prospects. So if they can get Price moved in this deal, I think it's more likely that the Dodgers would take that than the Padres. But if L.A. balks all the way around, sure, San Diego may take a shot, make that run, see if they can't get themselves in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, they feel like the team to beat in this derby because, A, they have the financial capital that you need. They're not afraid of spending it. And then, obviously, they've got the prospects that could get this deal done as well. And I've seen in a couple of different places, you start connecting the Tampa Bay tree in this as well with Andrew Mm -hmm. Friedman in L.A., with Haim Bloom now in charge of the Red Sox, and, of course, David Price, the former Tampa Bay product as well. Just another interesting undercurrent if that is, in fact, part of what might lead to Mookie Betts eventually being dealt out of Boston to help them take away that big contract. And I know it's been said, I feel like it's unlikely because, you know, why would you let him get into free agency? But if the Red Sox get under the luxury tax and want to spend a whole bunch of money, they could make an overture at Mookie Betts and see if he'd like to come home. Yeah, and it may be a possibility. I mean, I don't think he would be necessarily leaving under bad circumstances if they say, look, you know, we're not sure where you're going to be. We've got to do what's best for our team. You're going to a contender, especially if it's to L.A. We can be, they can say, look, we're, we're going to give you an opportunity to win another ring uh, out there with the Dodgers and then possibly bring you back or maybe the Dodgers spend the money uh, to yep. keep them around. Either, either way, um, Betts is going to be fine. He's getting, what, $27, 28000000 million, whatever that contract <laughs> yep. ended up being this year. So he's going to be fine. David Price is going to be fine. Again, if they do put price in there, I think it lowers the value. Sounds kind of weird that you'd be getting two guys and two pretty good players, but the prospect value would go down because of all the money that is owed price on the back end of this deal. Yeah, and think about this as well, just to kind of wrap this up and put a bow on it, for what does David Price mean for the Dodgers? Well, they lost Hunjin Ryu, and they also lost Rich Hill, so 
their rotation could possibly use a left-hander who's got some experience, including maybe, I don't know, not too long ago, winning the World Series at the expense of the Dodgers. So perhaps David Price could come in, and even if he's not the front of the rotation guy, could help you know round out that starting five. Yeah, absolutely. All right, there was an outfielder that did get traded in the past week. The Pirates saying goodbye to Starling Marte, to the Diamondbacks of all places. Pittsburgh gets a couple of young prospects, pretty decent players, but down in the low minor leagues for right now. But more importantly, their club payroll is now $43 million for 2020. Mm. They've been doing a lot of this in Pittsburgh. I mean, they're going to have a payroll of $43 million, and Mookie Betts, is making close to $30 million. He's one guy. What's going on in Pittsburgh? Yeah, it's wild to see it, and especially after what felt like, and I'm sure for Pittsburgh sports fans, there's no two ways about this. It was a long climb to get back to respectability in the baseball world, and I know that Pittsburgh is a town for the Steelers, is a town for the Penguins, especially when those clubs are winning as well, but Pittsburgh to me is also a baseball town, and the Pittsburgh Pirates are one of the more storied franchises, one of the oldest franchises in all of baseball, and they have a beautiful ballpark, and it's been shown that if they win, their fans will show up in droves, and for some reason, this thing has trended backwards over the past few years with uh, the trade of Garrett Cole. Of course, Andrew McCutcheon was the face of that franchise for a while. He was a little bit older, so maybe that's a different kind of case, but they've traded away a lot of talent the last few years and they haven't necessarily reloaded with major league-ready pieces to keep that club in contention. And I know injury and different things have happened as well to some of their key players, and that happens to clubs and can derail a season, but it really feels like Pittsburgh has reached critical mass and just kind of decided to blow this thing up and start all over again. And you don't need a Starling Marte to do what it is looking like that they're going to do with a $43 million payroll, and that's probably lose 95 to 100 games. So disappointing I guess would be a a word to put on it because of how long it took for the Pittsburgh Pirates to make that climb back up the National League standings but am I surprised no not really because this is the kind of stuff that uh, from time to time and from city to city with very few exceptions seems to be a trend in baseball and probably going to come up in the collective bargaining agreement when clubs are getting luxury tax money and they're not putting it on the field and investing in talent. Yeah, and another point for the players to point out to the ownership about what they're doing with the cash. $1.4 million last year, just shy of $1.5 million in attendance at PNC Park, which is one of the best newer ballparks uh, out there. Beautiful but even backdrop. That, the skyline of that ballpark, not to cut you off, but the skyline, no, it's, it's, it's picturesque. I mean, you could ask an artist to paint what the backdrop of a beautiful baseball stadium in a city would look like and I doubt that he could come up with something better than what you see looking out from home plate at PNC Park. No question. And, and that's why I'm still amazed that they get a million and a half. But even with that, that was 14th out of 15 National League teams yeah. in attendance last year. Can't blame the Pittsburgh fans. This is a team that only won 69 games, and they kind of see what's coming. And like you said, they're probably going to lose close to 100 games coming up in 2020 because – Really, who's now the the guy that they're going to build around in that lineup? I mean, Brian Reynolds was pretty good. I mean, three fourteen last year. That's all well and good, but he's not a name guy. No, I mean, I don't, I don't think you're taking your kids and going, hey, let's go see Brian Reynolds play baseball this weekend. Again, nothing against Brian Reynolds. He's just they don't have that cachet of 
of people that are going to say, hey, you know what? We should go see. If Garrett Cole is pitching, you may say, look, we only win 70 games this year, but we need to go see this guy pitch. They don't have that guy on this roster right now. No, they do not. And Garrett Cole is a name that, you know, I was alluding to and was going to bring up. But also think about the fact that for some reason they traded Garrett Cole and then turned around and traded for Chris Archer, which no offense to Chris Archer, who has been a good pitcher in his career, an all-star pitcher, not the same category as a Garrett Cole. So that is by default a downgrade. But also look at what you traded away to get Chris Archer. Look at what you got from Houston for Garrett Cole. You start doing some simple math on some of the transactions lately, and they haven't exactly panned out. And in addition to that, because I'm not saying that, hey, every trade that involves prospects is going to work out great because you're always going to pick the right ones both to receive and to give away because that's not how that works. But Pittsburgh has not really been able to cash in, if you will, on any of its trade ships to get that, as you mentioned, franchise-type player. Like they're not getting a Fernando Tatis Jr., coming over in a trade they're not getting that kind of marquee talent number one prospect heck even a yon mancada who the red sox traded away to the white sox yeah it took a year and a half or so but mancada all of a sudden is a guy who looks like at least he could be an all-star level player the pirates don't have a whole bunch of all-star level players that have come back in some of these trades and i would imagine that chris archer would probably be on the move if he's healthy this year as well so that 100 game thing seems to be a foregone conclusion as far as the loss column is concerned and Again, I just hate to see it because I I know and I've seen it in Atlanta in terms of a lot of winning for a long time. And then more recently, where you have a club that's going to lose 90, 95 games, it changes a lot of your fan base. And it's hard to watch folks go through it. It's not a whole lot of fun. And you just hope that you're able to emerge from it better off. The Braves, I think, have through a variety of different moves and drafts and things that they've done and uh, some trades as well. But for Pittsburgh you got to have the right leadership in there, and it doesn't really seem like they have a cohesive uh, vision of what exactly they've been doing up there to this point, and that's going to have to change. And you look at the guys for the Pirates that started at least 20 games or close to 20 games. We'll go 19 as being the, the line of demarcation, and none of them are under 25 years old. Joe Musgrave is the uh, Musgrave, excuse me, is the youngest guy at 26. Yep. They so your point is perfectly valid that they're not even getting the young guys in there now. They have you know Mitch Keller uh, is a guy that they gave a shot to. He's only twenty three. He was a disaster in his eleven starts, but at least they gave him a look, um, and and, and will get an opportunity coming into twenty twenty to be in that rotation. But as you mentioned, Archer's thirty. You know he's he's not a young guy. It's not like they you know got rid of Cole and then went and got Archer and, and replaced one young stud for another. They didn't do that. Archer's 30. Trevor Williams is 27. By the time these guys that are in the low minors get there, these guys are done. They don't have anything to build through. So I'm with you. I'm not sure what the game plan is here in Pittsburgh. Yeah, the one thing I will say is they do have Josh Bell. But then the question becomes, if you go into full-scale rebuild, that is your one great trade ship. You've got to cash that one in at that point because I don't think Pittsburgh is going to take what I like to call the Freddie Freeman approach and think, well, we're going to hold on to this guy because we're going to try to make the quick turnaround. I don't think they know what they're going to do, but I will say this. I'll wrap it on this. If you've got Melky Cabrera playing 130 games for you in the year 2019 like they did last year, it ain't going to be pretty from an offensive standpoint. No, absolutely not. Yeah, I'm with you there. And again, even in their lineup, uh, Reynolds at 24, their youngest guy in the lineup, you look up and down it. I mean, they got rid of Marte. He was going to be 31 this year, but there's a lot of late 20s 
guys on this roster. And you and I both know mm-hmm. generally by the times get the guys get to the late twenties, they're starting on the backside of their career. They're not up and comers anymore. They may have a couple more solid years, but they're not going to have that growth uh, where you say, Hey, you know, guy hit the, Two eighty next last year. We think he can get to you know two ninety, two ninety five with you know a little more pop in his bat. That's not happening with those guys once they get twenty nine, thirty, thirty one. Yeah, so not trending the way that I think most Pittsburgh fans would like for it to for the Pirates. But let's talk about another club that's been trending in a not so great direction over the last twelve months. That of course would be the Rockies. And the news out of Colorado we've been waiting for has been something to do with their star third baseman either definitively staying or perhaps being traded away. That, of course, is Nolan Arenado. But the Rockies did come to an agreement to buy out Trevor Story's final two arbitration years for a combined total of $27.5 million. If the Rockies decide to rebuild, then the cost certainty might be very appealing. I would say would be very appealing to other clubs when it comes to Trevor Story. But I'm not sure if we know yet exactly what to expect until the Nolan Arenado saga really plays out. To me, quite honestly, Grant, I don't think it matters either way. This is a good deal for Colorado. I mean, you're talking about a, a guy who's been an all-star the last two years. He's going to hit, you know, close to 40 home runs for them. He's going to hit close to 300, you know, inflated in Colorado or not. Those are still seriously good numbers. Um, I don't mind this move at all because they're buying out a guy his 27 and 28-year um, age years. Mm-hmm. Um, as we just talked about, this should be his prime. He should be right where he's going to be for his best seasons. It's a good move for them because, as you said, if they go to trade him, teams know exactly what they're going to get. But it's also a good move for them because I'm guessing he probably would have made more in arbitration the next couple of years had he gone through year 27 and gone back to the table Think about how much money Mookie Betts made getting to the end of arbitration. Story may be right along there with him. Yeah, no, that was that's a very good point. And there's not too many shortstops across baseball that have the offensive profile of Trevor Story as well. Colorado home games notwithstanding, this is a guy who's a serious offensive threat. So two years at $27.5 million, yeah, I would say that two years of Trevor Story is worth the same price as one year of Mookie Betts and then some from that cost standpoint. So Good deal for the Rockies, most certainly, to just not have to go through the acrimony of the arbitration. I'm sure that doesn't hurt Story's feelings either. However, I still have to wonder, where exactly is Colorado going? And as Nolan Arenado goes, I think that we'll know the direction for this club uh, very shortly thereafter, if, in fact, he changes uniforms, changes zip codes, and moves on from his career manning the hot corner out there in Colorado. Well, if, if he does get moved, and let's just say that he gets moved for Chris Bryant, that's still pretty good sure. middle of the lineup for Colorado, which, I mean, if you're Trevor Story, you're thrilled with either guy hitting in front or behind you, whatever the case may be. So uh, their offense will still be very, very productive no matter what they do. Now, if they move him and just get – it's talking about Arenado, if they move him and just get prospects, then if you're Trevor Story, you're going, now, wait a minute, <laughs> I still need some help in this lineup here, but – um, I, I think he's going to be perfectly content no matter who's hitting behind him. Certainly $27 million over a couple of years is, is life-changing money. No doubt. Um, so he's going to be fine. And I, I look for him, again, probably to be another, you know, another all-star year in 2020. He'll probably be a top 10 MVP candidate again, depending on how Colorado does. So um, I think good move for him and good move for Colorado, quite frankly. One of those rare times that I think it works out for both sides. Yeah, not a lot of times do you get to say, hey, good move, Colorado, lately. (laughs) That's a very, very fair point. All right, 
This is going to be a lot of fun. I'm not sure that there'll be any umpires out there showing off the guns like Ed Hockley does <laughs> or did in the NFL, but Major League Baseball has decided now in 2020 that their umpires will be possibly announcing the replay decisions just like the NFL does when their referee goes out in the middle of the field and says, here's what happened on the replay. The runner was down. The ball is incomplete, whatever it may be. But do we need this from the umpires? Do you like the fact that they're going to put these guys out there and, and have to talk to everybody in the stadium and everyone at home watching? You know, to be honest with you, and I may have made this joke before, so forgive me if I have, but I think it bears repeating. It always seems like the best umpires are the ones that you just don't even know their names because they yep. just go out there and they do their thing and you're not constantly complaining. And there's not too many of those guys that, that come immediately to mind that um, you think about what a great job this umpire did, so let's call him out and celebrate him. I don't think too many people do that. Not a, hey, great strike zone tonight. Really excited for what you did. It's your job. That's what you're supposed to be doing. So we hear people complain about the bad strike zones and the bad calls. And uh, the replay, obviously, has put another wrinkle into everything. And I'm kind of of the opinion that there are tweaks that the replay system needs. And I don't know if having the umpires announce it via microphone to explain the outcome of it really does a whole lot other than perhaps give fans a chance to boo about something a little <laughs> bit louder and for a little bit longer than they were when the umpire either walks out of that huddle signaling safe or out. I don't know that it really does a whole lot. So uh, I think this is kind of something that uh, for optics sake, maybe they feel like it's being a little bit more clear, but I also feel like it's kind of a waste of time. And I'm of the opinion that as far as replay goes, let's make this as expeditious as possible. Let's not waste any more time than we have to. Yeah, and unlike the NFL, I'm not sure. There are obviously certain instances when baseball rules can get pretty, pretty confusing to the average fan. And and even to us who have been around the game where you just, you know, we say it all the time, you go to a baseball game, you may see something you've never seen before, sure. and you're not quite sure what's going on. In that case, okay, maybe. But if a guy steals second and the call is out and the team challenges and he comes out and says safe – do we need him to explain that the runner beat the tag? I don't. I don't, I don't. I don't know that we do. I think we kind of figure that out. Oh, he's safe. They must have beat the tag. So I'm not sure that I get the reason why they would need to do it unless it's a very confusing type of situation. Yeah. I can't think of an example off the top of my head, Me but uh, there are there are plenty of them. Unlike in the NFL, where it's you know, oh, he didn't make a football move, or he was juggling when he was still going out of bounds, or he didn't complete the play. And I hate NFL replay a lot of times too. Um, so I'm definitely with you. The quicker you can get back to playing the game, the better off I am. Unless it's completely confusing, then I'm not sure we need to hear from the umpires at all. If the guy was out, and you then change it to safe. We get it. We figured it out. 100% agree with that. So let's wrap things up this week with something that will be. Not necessarily the on-the-field change that folks will need to be informed of over the PA, but something that is good to know as we head to spring training and a whole bunch of guys are fighting for jobs on what is now a 26-man roster. Uh, according to Jason Stark of The Athletic, 26 men, but the limit will be 13 pitchers, and clubs have been informed of this as well. Only caveat to this, of course, would be the very few clubs that have a two-way player who has that designation and could be both a hitter and a pitcher while occupying one spot on the active roster. So that's a plus for the Angels when Shohei Otani comes back and can pitch again, and perhaps what Michael Lorenzen for the Cincinnati Reds as well. But long story short, 50% of your roster can be pitchers of the 26 men, so 13 position players 
13 pitchers. And, Bill, I think that is an interesting move as we've seen baseball become more and more reliant on having more and more relievers to utilize each and every night. So an important designation in a lot of ways to say, hey, the limit's 13. True, but we also have the three batter limit now, too, or minimum now, too, right? So, I mean, you don't necessarily have to carry as many pitchers in the past. Here's my question, and I just thought of this now, so I, I apologize for springing it on you without discussing this with you. How will Major League Baseball designate if a guy becomes a two-way player? Is it going to be like if you're playing fantasy baseball, he's got to play five games, ten games? What's it going to be? Because I could see a, a really you know crafty manager maybe throwing a guy out there in a blowout, let him play first base for a few times, and then say, well, he's a two-way guy. So he counts as a position player when really you're just sneaking him as another 14th pitcher on the roster, but you're saying he also plays first base. Well, I'm not saying that I'm not saying anybody would do that, but I'm not saying they wouldn't either. Here's the thing with a two-way player rule. To qualify for that two-way player designation, that player must pitch 20 major league innings and have 20 games played as a position player or designated hitter. So it's not a small sample size kind of thing because 20 games of having a pitcher play left field, let's say, that would be a lot. And then also having a position player throw 20 innings would also be a lot. So more or less, to have that designation, you are going to have to reach certain benchmarks. So very few clubs are going to have this. I don't think this is going to be the advent of every club trying to have a two-way player. Maybe we see a little uptick of it here and there. It is always interesting, I think, to find those guys that can do it, but the list is very short. And in terms of guys that do both things well enough to qualify – Uh, for a spot on a roster like that, I don't think we're going to see a ton of those guys. And that's one of the things that makes Otani such an exciting player if, in fact, he becomes the hitter and the pitcher that he appeared to be upon signing with the Angels after his run in Japan. Well, see, I'm glad that somebody in Major League Baseball and their executive offices, they probably had somebody like ourselves that thought about this and said, now, wait a minute, somebody could sneak this through if you only have it at like five or 10 games, like they have in some fantasy leagues, but 20, that's a great number. Because like you said, odds are you're not even going to try to sneak them in as uh, you know, as playing first base or left field or whatever, even in a blowout. You're not going to do that 20 times to skirt the rules. So I'm glad they thought about it, but I think 13 and 13 is fine. I think eventually we're going to get to the National League having the DH anyway. So it'll be even easier as far as the pitchers go because your starters yeah. will be able to go a little bit longer. Um, I think that's what we're moving towards. And for those of us that like National League Baseball, and, and I'm one of them, um, I think that would be uh, too bad. But I really think that that's good, the way it's going to go. And that may be one of the things that comes up in the CBA, actually, the next time around. And let me throw a few things out there. An, an article I found by David Adler on MLB.com from about a year ago this time. This designation and this was part of the rule changes that the league and the Players Association announced last spring. It's going into effect this year now as part of the criteria to determine how clubs can use players in both the regular season and the postseason. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we've seen all these position players pitching. That used to be fun and quirky. I don't want to see that again anytime soon if it can at all be avoided because it became way too common in the last few years to see that. So now only players designated as pitchers will be allowed to pitch in a game, including in October, with three exceptions. The game goes into extra innings. A team is winning or losing by six or more runs, and the player has earned that two-way designation. So I think that's pretty fascinating to see that they did think ahead of this and 26-man roster coming into play this year. 
having this rule agreed to so you're not rushing into spring training trying to tell everybody, hey, 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 there's a designation or hey, 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 here's things you need to be aware of. You got to know about this coming in. And it looks like they did their due diligence in this case. So uh, kudos to all around and 26 men on the roster. I think everybody's kind of excited to see that. Yeah, it's always good. Add an extra guy in. The players get, uh, again, more money because it's more players in the major leagues by 30, obviously. So they get those extra roster spots, and it provides uh, more opportunity for maybe some young guys who who maybe, going back to Chris Bryant, maybe they would have been held down for yeah. a couple of weeks. Now they got the extra roster spot. There's not that excuse anymore that you can't find room for him on the roster. Now you have that opportunity. So, again, very rarely do we say – that a league got something right, but I think Major League Baseball has done a good job of kind of sorting through this and making sure that everybody's on the same page. Yeah, one other guy to think about with this and just kind of sprung to mind as I thumbed through or, well, virtually thumbed through this article, Brendan McKay of the Tampa Bay Rays has been a pitcher and a position player as well, talented at both, hasn't really established himself at the big league level just yet, don't know that any final designation or decision really by the club has been made as to what his primary focus may end up being, but left-handed pitcher, also a DH and first baseman. Uh, He's a two-way prospect, and that's something worth monitoring as Tampa Bay charts out the future for McKay, and perhaps he can blaze a trail that includes right now, I think, just Shohei Otani as a legitimate two-way player. Yeah, hopefully we get more of those guys. You see them all the time in high school and even in college that guys can do both. And it's to me, it makes you more valuable. If if you can do more than one thing, I I don't see why uh, Major League Baseball teams don't try to encourage that uh, to a certain degree because it only makes your ball club better. Uh, Having a Shohei Otani, I think every club would love to have one of those, but there's only one of those. Absolutely. It'll be a lot of fun to to watch them uh, try to pull this off. And I hope he gets back to pitching because it was always fun to see him be able to do both, um, especially when they went to a National League park oh, and you sure. knew that he was going to be able to hit and pitch. I mean, that's, again, it, it lengthens out that line of it makes him tough. It does, and it also gives people something else that, you know, you come to a ballpark and you see something that you may have never seen before. A guy like Shohei Otani who might end up not only pitching in a game but hitting in a game and making a huge impact with the bat, that's something that's pretty rare these days as well as a lot of pitchers it seems like batting practice is probably the last thing that they're really prioritizing as they get ready for that particular day. But that wraps up our starting nine for this week. A lot of interesting topics, a lot of kind of uh, fun stories that continue to go on as we count down our days to spring training. And it is less than two weeks before pitchers and catchers will be reporting to both Florida and to Arizona. And I know we both are sitting here right now just continuing that countdown and looking forward to getting baseball back in our lives. And exhibition baseball, I believe, cranks up about 10 days after pitchers and catchers have reported to spring training. So it's not come down and uh, get loosened up for three or four weeks and then we'll play a game. It's pretty much, hey, come to spring training in shape, do a little bit of throwing, a little bit of running, a little bit of hitting, and let's line them up and play a few exhibition games. And, oh, by the way, start the season earlier than ever before as well. Yep, it's going to be a lot of fun. Looking forward to it again. It's right around the corner. All right, Bill, I appreciate your time as always. Look forward to chatting with you again next week. Yep, have a great weekend. My thanks again to Bill Rowland for jumping on the show to talk about the happenings across Major League Baseball over the past week. Make sure you follow Bill on Twitter at Bill Rowland, B-I-L-L-R-O-H-L-A-N-D. That'll do it for this episode of From the Diamond. If you like what you heard, make sure you're subscribed. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Leave those ratings and those reviews, and be sure you're connected on social media on Twitter at From the Diamond underscore. I am at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. You can also find the show on Instagram at From the Diamond, and I am at Grant McCauley 
on Instagram as well. Everything is available for you at fromthediamond.com. That includes every episode of the show and my Braves positional preview series. Part three of five goes up this weekend. I'll focus on the Atlantic catchers led by Travis Darno and, of course, Tyler Flowers and including a couple of really nice catching prospects making their way through the Braves minor league system. So be sure to check out that Braves positional preview series at fromthediamond.com. Once again, my thanks to Bill Rowland for joining the show and my thanks to you for listening to this episode of From the Diamond. We will catch you next week with all your Braves and baseball talk. But until then, I'm Grant McCauley. So long, everyone.